Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Steve. We're continuing the Judges Podcast today, making some serious progress now. We'll cover chapters 10 through 12 today, and the next podcast will get us all the way through chapter 16 with the conclusion of the Samson story. Just a couple quick notes. Uh, like I mentioned in the last podcast, there have been a lot of changes to the website. If you haven't visited the, in, a, in a while, it's sdgriffin.com. S as in Sierra, D as in Dinosaur, Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N.com. Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, there's a link on the website that will get you set up there, too. So thanks for listening. And, um, yeah, enough with the shameless self-promotion, I guess. Um, This podcast, by the way, has been a tremendous outlet for me. And I feel very privileged to be able to do this and get it out there. by the way, I'm, I'm going to be setting up an easier way to get a hold of me. I've heard from a couple of you out there amongst the internet, um, but you've had to work pretty hard to find me, and I get that. So hopefully this week I'll get a contact form set up on the website because I'd love to hear from you, um, how this podcast can improve, what you're learning from it, and I'll let you know when that's all set up. Okay, on with the story. We're right in the aftermath of the gloriously seedy history of Abimelech and the people of Shechem, and we're quickly introduced to two more judges of Israel, Tola and Jair. At least as far as scripture is concerned, these guys uh, didn't do a whole lot. They lived, they died, they had sons and donkeys, you know how it goes. And then, drumroll, verse 6, quote, again, the sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, unquote. Surprise, surprise. We learn that the people of God are continuing to serve the Canaanite gods and to disregard Yahweh. To which Yahweh says, "Um, you know what, I don't know why, but that's it. I'm done. Maybe that's not the most literal translation, but that's definitely what he says. Look it up. Verse 7 says that the anger of Yahweh burns against them. And not for no reason, certainly. But the Ammonites are allowed to conquer the Israelites as a result of this disobedience. Um, These Ammonites, these would be people from Ammon, east of the Jordan River, uh, which will be important in the next couple chapters. Uh, This is the area of present-day Jordan. Think of the city of Ammon today, of present-day Jordan. And that's pretty much the area that we're talking about. And notice verse 8 before we move on. It says, quote, They, the Ammonites, extinguished and exterminated the sons of Israel in that year. Now, does this really mean that all of Israel, or even all of the sons of Israel, were actually exterminated? Well, no, of course not. I mean, otherwise the story would be done. The Bible would be over, and Jesus would have never come. It's taken for granted here that the point is being grossly exaggerated that the Israelites are being killed and oppressed, um, but certainly not exterminated. Which leads to a cautionary note, uh, we've said it before, in how we read the Jewish scriptures. Some numbers, some events, are going to be hyperbole or exaggerations for the sake of effect. The writers of these books and letters in your Bible use a lot of the same uh, literary techniques that writers in the modern age use. So we can't just mindlessly read scripture uh, literally, thinking that that's the best way to be faithful to the intent of the text. 
And by extension, the best way to be faithful to what God has for you to learn and internalize from the text. We have got to be smart readers. Okay, soapbox off, back to the narrative. Moving on to verse 13. Yahweh accuses the Israelites of serving other gods, which of course they have, in direct violation of the covenant. You remember the covenant? The legal agreement that he and Israel have together. And then God says, Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Israel won't keep its end of the covenant, then Yahweh is free to disregard his end of the covenant. But then the people toss out the foreign gods. And they begin to serve Yahweh again. And and the text says that Yahweh could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So presumably he now is going to deliver them once again. And that's the end of chapter 10. But let's take a break from the action and look at what's going on. We have all these actions, feelings even, being attributed to Yahweh. Yahweh is angry at the Israelites. He accuses them of violation of their legal covenant. He tells them he's through with them. And then he shows mercy to them. And now the scene is set for him to raise up a judge to deliver them from their enemy, the Ammonites. Which, for me, raises the same question that continually comes up for me in Judges, which is, how does the writer really know what Yahweh is thinking, and what Yahweh is feeling, and what Yahweh is doing? Is God personally telling the author this? Is God speaking somehow to the people of Israel? Is this through a series of of dreams, maybe? Is this through a prophet? And yet God is behaving in a way that is consistent with his character. I mean, he's angry at Israel for becoming Canaanized, for worshiping these stupid little wood and stone sculptures. But then he shows mercy when they finally seem to come around. So there's no real reason to doubt from the passage that God is in fact saying and doing these things. I'm not suggesting that he's not. But, but how, how was he communicating all this? And of course, uh, we just don't know. Okay, chapters 11 and 12. Two things to notice from these chapters. First, Yahweh has reappeared in the narrative. He's back. Remember, during the entire story of Abimelech, Yahweh doesn't appear once. But now his name is all over the place. Second, we're going to learn more about how the gods in general were viewed and regarded in the ancient Near East, particularly the Canaanite approach to their gods and to Yahweh. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, we have to introduce our next judge, Jephthah. And wow, does this guy get an introduction. Verse 1, quote, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a heroic warrior, but he was the son of a whore. Unquote. That actually is a literal translation. Although we should quickly mention before moving on that the word here is uh, for whore or, or prostitute, which might be in your version. Um, it, this is the Hebrew term zona which can apparently cover quite a bit more ground than just a woman who takes money for sex. Um, It doesn't always have to mean that. Zona uh, might rather imply that uh, Jephthah was the product of an affair, uh, whereby his father merely slept with a woman outside the marital relationship. It's impossible to be certain which, in fact, is the case. 
Okay, and let's talk quickly about geographically. Like, where are we here in, in chapters 11 and 12? Remember, with Abimelech, we were mostly in Shechem. Uh, Shechem is in the north of Israel, in Samaria. Uh, but now we're all the way east of the Jordan River in Gilead. Now, this is the region in uh, present-day Jordan, um, near where John the Baptist would have actually been next to the river uh, baptizing, directly underneath Mount Nebo. Uh, Mount Nebo, if you remember from... from uh, the, the Pentateuch, this is where uh, Yahweh calls Moses to look out over the promised land before his death. And uh, that's right underneath Mount Nebo is where we're at here. So that's the action of 11 and 12. Uh, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute, the product of an affair. We're not sure, but he's outcast by his brothers and his community because of this. And in the aftermath of this, he seems to have made a name for himself as a bit of a mercenary or a thief, to the point where Ammon attacks Gilead again, and the community with its tail firmly between its legs now begs Jephthah to come back. And not just to come back, and not just to help them fight Ammon, but actually to take charge of their army. So the author of Judges is highlighting the state of affairs throughout Israel during the period of the Judges. The leadership vacuum is so pervasive that the people of Gilead are now asking a notorious criminal to lead their forces into battle for them. And and really, you know, it seems like we should have a whole book sitting in front of us telling us about Jephthah, doesn't it? I would love to know more about what this guy was up to. Piracy, some kind of mob boss out there in the middle of the wilderness. Um, what, what drove him to that life? What was that like? It's unfortunate we don't have those details. But wouldn't he make a great movie? There's so much speculation we could um, make about this guy. Okay, we don't have those details, unfortunately. What happens next is that Jephthah begins to negotiate with the elders of Gilead. You can read this negotiation in in verses 7 to 11. Uh, You'll see Yahweh's name invoked several times. And overall, this language uh, that's being used is very specific to the making of a covenant. Standard ancient Near Eastern legal language. So we know that Gilead and Jephthah are now under covenant to one another. And this is one thing uh, we didn't see by the way, when Abimelech agreed to lead Shechem in chapter 9, but that that was a different tribe in a different part of Israel, a much more Canaanized tribe, and Gilead apparently is not as thoroughly Canaanized as Shechem had become. They still invoke Yahweh's name, at least. And then beginning in verse 12 of chapter 11, we see a different negotiation. This time between Jephthah and the king of Ammon. And notice the language, quote, What is at issue between me and you, that you have come against me to fight against my country? End quote. He's acting very much like a king here, which of course we've seen that a few times already, but at least Jephthah is following the correct diplomatic procedure here, instead of just running off and fighting like Gideon or Abimelech did. And as part of this negotiation, Jephthah reminds the king of Ammon of the Israelites' migration path from Egypt into Canaan, and how from his perspective, from the Israelite perspective, the people of Ammon were never harmed as a result of this migration. And keep in mind, of course, that the Ammonites are a Canaanite people. 
that have in fact been around since the Exodus. I mean, even though Jephthah is reminding them of what happened during the Exodus, the Ammonites remember they were they were there. It's been several generations now, but but they were they were a people. If we skip down to verses twenty four and twenty five, Jephthah gives us a, re, a very revealing glimpse into how these peoples were viewing their gods. Chemosh, um, he says fights and possesses land from the Ammonites. Chemosh was, of course, one of the territorial Canaanite gods. Um, Balak fights and possesses land for the Moabites. Balak was a Moabite god. And Yahweh then, by extension, fights and possesses land for the Israelites. The Semitic peoples of the ancient Near East generally viewed their chief gods as territorial and as warriors fighting on behalf of the people that worshipped them to expand their territory, to help them defend it. And, and we will see this theme throughout the Old Testament with Yahweh playing the part of the divine warrior, going before Israel and fighting on their behalf. The most significant difference, of course, being that Yahweh claims to be the God over all creation and not just over one territory. And here's where the story takes kind of a jarring turn. Ammon and Gilead end up going to war, Jephthah makes a vow to Yahweh. If Yahweh will just help him win this battle against Ammon, he promises to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of the door of his house when he returns. And he does win the battle. Returns home. And his daughter comes out the door, dancing. The actual feel of the Hebrew makes the scene jump off the page. Look! His daughter is coming out to meet him! The writer switches up the tone, takes us away from the past tense narrative, and throws us right into the middle of the scene, present tense. There she is! It's her! Look! Jephthah is now in an impossible position. He made a vow to Yahweh, which cannot be revoked. The Old Testament law makes no provision to renounce a vow to God once it's been made. The rabbis eventually will make uh, a provision to, to be able to do this, but that's centuries down the road from where we are right now with Jephthah. And upon seeing his daughter come out of that house, he tears his clothes and begins ranting at her. What? Have you done to me? He blames her. It's easy enough for us to see that Jephthah made a rash vow, a stupid vow before God. It's similar in more more ways than one, actually, to King Herod's promise to Herodias' daughter in John's Gospel, you remember her, where he promises her anything after her dance in the palace. And she demands John the Baptist's head on a plate and he has to follow through with it, because he made a stupid vow. Here, with Jephthah, another girl dances, and the stupid promise now must be followed through on. But in this land of mine, there's only Just one more quick note about this vow that Jephthah takes before God. Some have argued that Jephthah 
most likely expected an animal to be the first creature to exit the house instead of a family member. In many ancient Near Eastern households, the stables were on the ground level of the home where the family members lived above. And the fact that Jephthah specifies that he's going to offer a burnt offering to Yahweh seems to fit that he expected an animal to exit the house first. Now others have countered that it would be expected for the women of the house to run out and greet the returning men of the household after a battle, after they'd been out to war. So it, w- it would also be reasonable for Jephthah to think that a daughter or even a wife might exit the house first. By his reaction, we have to assume that he at a minimum didn't realize that this particular daughter would be the first, would be the one he would, he would have to sacrifice. And, and then watch what she does. She now knows that her father has condemned her to die. She's a dead woman. And here's her response to this. Quote, My father, you opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me just what came out of your mouth after what Yahweh has done for you, avenging your enemies, the sons of Ammon. End quote. Okay, I have trouble with this response. It just doesn't sound like a realistic, immediate response on her part. I'm just going to say that. Knowing that she is about to be put to death by her own father. It's too cold, too rational, too unfeeling for what I can only assume was a young adolescent girl. It's not to say this, that she definitely didn't say this, but I can't help but wonder if this was really her first reaction to what's just happened. I don't know. In any event, she asked for two months to mourn her virginity, which in essence means that she will never formally be initiated into womanhood. So her and her friends, for two months, go into the mountains and, I assume, walk the earth, like Cain and Kung Fu, for you Pulp Fiction fans out there. Two months, her and her friends go in the mountains, and do what exactly? I mean, we don't have specific details on how a group of adolescent girls expect to survive the dangers of the, the Jordan wilderness. Unless we have a, a group of Katnesses from the Hunger Games here, um, that's two movie references. Unless we got a group of them, which I don't think we do, there must be more to it than this, than what we are told. I mean, in any event, she comes back. So she, her and her friends survive this. Um, she comes back, and her father oh, sacrifices her. So she would have been killed. And then presumably, her entire body sat on fire at the altar as a burnt offering until nothing of it remained. And thus ends chapter 11. Notice the difference between this story and the story of Abraham and Isaac, which was a divine test of obedience, right? And it was stopped before the sacrifice. Abraham's knife was stopped before he plunged it into Isaac. But no one intervenes and stops Jephthah's knife from slicing into his daughter's windpipe. This was a stupid, impulsive vow. And she's allowed to die. To which I think the question has to be asked. Did God approve of this? The text, of course, does not say. But considering what's about to happen in chapter 19, I have a very hard time believing that this sacrifice 
was necessary or condoned by Yahweh. Of course, I have every benefit of being a detached reader thousands of years later, but considering that the treatment of women is a central theme near the end of Judges, I can't help but wonder if this is an example of an error due to the patriarchal mindset of the ancient Israelites. I don't think that Yahweh would have required the sacrifice, I don't think that he approved of it, and I think that that's implicit in the text. Finally, we get to chapter 12. You guys can disagree with me with, on that point, by the way. I'm just throwing out my reading of this. Scholars differ. I'm sure pastoral people would differ on how to interpret this sacrifice. It's one of the more problematic passages in the Old Testament. And um, I'm glad that we get to treat it here, but um, come to your own conclusions, and I would be anxious to hear what those conclusions are. Okay, chapter 12. Very short and therefore very easy to treat. Uh, the people of Ephraim who live on the west side of the Jordan River are now insulted, insulted, that they were not invited to help attack Ammon. Maybe they were feeling threatened by Gilead. They didn't want to be the next group to be attacked by Jephthah in case he decided to take after Gideon or Abimelech and rampage the countryside. Understandable, I guess. Jephthah's all like, dude, I totally invited you, but you were all like, we're not in, leave a message with the beep or whatever. So I did it myself. What? That, of course, is another literal translation of what Jephthah said. It's not, not actually remotely literal, but it captures the essence. Okay, so thus begins one of the more useless battles of the book of Judges. Ephraim and Gilead, two Israelite tribes, are now fighting. Ephraim loses. Now, verse 5. There's this detail that lends a great deal of historical authenticity to the story. It seems that refugees from Ephraim are now wanting to cross over the Jordan River to the east side, to Gilead. But the crossing areas of the river are now being guarded by men from Gilead. So, one of these guys from Ephraim would get to the river, and a guard from Gilead would see him. And he would ask him to pronounce the word Shibole, which apparently the people from Ephraim would mispronounce it Sibole, and at which point they would be killed on the spot. Their accent uh, or their dialect would give them away. So we learned that there were local and regional dialects in use at this time, which makes perfect sense. And as, of course, these tribes are still fairly independent of one another, and they are certainly not united or appearing to be united as a single country of Israel at this point. And finally, we have recorded a number of minor judges who came after Jephthah, uh, though we know practically nothing about them. So as a takeaway, um, I'm struck with the ancientness of all this. I mean, sure, we could focus on moral takeaways, how seriously Jephthah took his vow to Yahweh, to God, for example, how, how he should not have made a vow like that in the first place, how the things that we say mean things. The things that we say mean something. And that's a very relevant takeaway for our culture especially. We say and commit to so much crap with our mouths that we have little to no intention on following through on. So don't get me wrong. The whole, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no thing, uh, that's here. That is here in the text. And for God's sake, pay attention to that. But for some reason, when I read and study these chapters in particular, 10 through 12, I really did kind of 
find myself in another place. I really could begin to believe that aspects of this story are 3,000 years old. The ancient Canaanite gods, roaming bands of thieves in the desert, a group of girls wandering in the wilderness, gatekeepers at the Jordan River demanding passwords. There's nothing especially sacred there's something, rather, especially sacred about parts of Judges, knowing that I'm handling something reaching back to the dark recesses of human history. Sometimes for me, that's what it means, that this is God's word and that it's inspired by his spirit, the fact that it tells a timeless story about his people, and somehow this has survived 3,000 years to end up in our hands. Next time, Samson. This guy's unbelievable. Enough said. We'll see you then.